entirely different property tax base. So that really is an example of how you can have two school districts within the same city or town that are funded entirely differently and reap various benefits entirely different. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are, of course, proudly sponsored by MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, the Government Finance Officers Association, and Build America Mutual. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by my intrepid co-host and temporary Wisconsinite, <laughs> Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Yeah, I came, came back from this Madison, Wisconsin last week and loved it. But, uh, you know, it, it was the weather was beautiful. So that helps the walked around the lakes, walked around campus, walked everywhere. I live in a place where I can just walk around my property because I don't want to walk on the big busy road. So this was like such a treat. Um, but yeah, really, really cute city. The capital was really impressive. Fun fact, I am told that if you calculate, if you converted the amount of money that they spent on the capital in t- today's dollars, it would be around 2 billion with a B. <laughs> so they, they went all out and and it, and it shows, but had a had a great time. And then I looked up the winter weather and decided I will be back in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Famously, famously cold there in the winter, despite all of its other redeeming qualities. So, well, glad to hear you had a, a good experience there and glad that you were able to impart some of your wisdom during the visit there. So we're, we're talking to Nilas about Public school finance, a topic we get to occasionally here on the Public Money Pod, and something that we should probably in some ways spend more time on just because it is such a huge share of the state and local fiscal landscape. And we're going to be hearing from uh, Tamara Mitchell, who is the uh, effectively the CFO, the Assistant Superintendent for finance in the Juliet, Illinois Public School District. Very interesting case study and uh, many of the trends that have been affecting public school finance and ultimately the uh, the outcomes in schools, student performance, student well-being, uh, other things that schools are trying to attend to. Uh, so we're excited to hear from her and, and get her take on financial leadership in uh, what is a really interesting case study. So when we talk about a place like like Juliet, Liz, and, and so many of these other places where we we really zero in on as interesting case studies in, in school finance, it really highlights the kind of two of the big tensions that we often zero in on when we're talking about public school finance. And one, of course, is the sort of running tension between state versus local control. We've talked often on this podcast about the property tax revolts of the late 70s, early 80s, all the way through, starting with Prop 13 in California. And then in pretty much every state, there was some version of a local tax limitation that was put in place over the next roughly 20 years. And in every single one of those cases, the the impacts on schools were particularly acute given that in so many places, uh, school districts are funded basically through state support and local revenues. And there's just a question of how much of the of one or the other do you see, but it costs what it costs to provide public education. And so some share of that's going to come from the state, some share of that's going to come locally. And when it comes locally, it's almost always coming in the form of property taxes. And so when you start limiting property taxes and tweaking uh, how much property taxes can grow year over year and how much mill levies can grow and what assessment rates are going to be applied and so forth, uh, all that affects public schools in a, in a very particular way. And so you know, something I know that we have both um, looked at quite a bit in our careers, in addition to that sort of classic state versus local tension, there's also the tension of what happens when you rely on property taxes 
And what that does from one place to the next, sometimes bringing out major differences in funding levels and resources from communities that might even be right next door to one another. When it's based on property wealth and property value, or based, not maybe not entirely, but at least in part on property wealth and property value, you know, you get all sorts of interesting uh, variations, some of them wanted, some of them unwanted. And sometimes the state can step in and intervene and, and correct some of those disparities. And sometimes the state can't. And sometimes the state correction creates more problems that need to be fixed later on. So all this contributes to this extremely complex, but also critically important set of questions around, again, that state versus local tension and our dependence on property taxes and the question of whether that's the right way to think about financing local schools. Liz, you've certainly looked at this a lot. Your thoughts on those two big tensions and where we are today with them. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that education finance is so hard to, I don't know, explain, write about, talk about is because it is so tangled with everything that you you just described. It's caught up in state funding and state uh, beliefs about, about how that funding should go, which can change from time to time. And then there's the property tax issue, which, you know, when you, when you, take that apart, there's uh, the, the inequities in property tax assessments, which the University of Chicago's Chris Berry has written, a, has done a lot of research on, and that's pretty stark. So it's, um, I mean, where do you start <laughs> with making this more fair? And California, interestingly, has done, I forget how many years ago, but somewhat recently passed, uh, maybe 10 years ago, passed a, a local control formula to try to correct for that. And the, the gist of it is to give more of, of the state resources towards schools with high schools in districts that are higher need and financially in higher need. So, for example, in some districts in California, they don't get really any state funding. But there's the property taxes are so through the roof that those kids still get like twice as much as kids in other districts. So, I mean, you, I mean, you can try, but there's still just that the vast inequities of our property tax system. And that's that's true for everywhere. But as you mentioned, California is a little weird because of Prop 13. So it's it's uh, you know, there's inequities in that, too. So I guess this is my long winded way of agreeing with you and saying there's just it's it's difficult to, to pick a place to start and and try to talk about how do we make education funding fair and equitable. I don't think there's there's not one right answer and there's not one answer that's going to be perfect. California has gone back to the drawing board again, sort of, to, to try and tweak its local control formula and account more for for uh, higher poverty districts. It's just, I mean, it's something that lawmakers, state legislators, especially and especially counties and local officials are going to ha- are, are constantly going to be talking about. Yeah, there's no easy way around it. And yet, if you are running a school district budget, you have no choice but to engage the system in one of any number of different ways. And that's a really interesting set of questions surrounding a very particular type of financial leadership and one that we're fortunate to be able to have the chance to learn a little bit more about it today. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod now, Tamara Mitchell, who is the Assistant Superintendent for Business and Financial Services in the Joliet, Illinois School District. Tamara, thanks so much for joining us here on the Public Money Pod. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. It's been a, it's been a little while since we've delved into uh, school finance. Um, before we do that, though, um, can you tell us a, just a little bit for anyone who's unfamiliar about Joliet or Joliet schools? What's uh, what are kind of the the general stats, population, any history you want to point out, local economic drivers? Give us the lay of the land. Sure, absolutely. Um, again, thanks for having me. Very happy to share about uh, the town and the school district that I represent. 
So I'll start with a little history on Joliet. So Joliet is the county seat of Will County. And interestingly enough, it was part of Cook County. Uh, for those outside of the Chicago area, that's the same county that Chicago is located in before the formation of Will County. Joliet is situated about 45 miles southwest of the city of Chicago. Honestly, that location makes it optimally located as the city is uh, well suited to be a transportation hub, which that's kind of the direction that things are going over the last few decades. Um, it's served by several interstates, so that really helps with that location. And also historically, the city has been largely known for its limestone. And as you drive through some neighborhoods in the city of Joliet, you'll see that evidence as there are many older buildings that have those limestone facades or completely constructed of limestones. So that limestone economy was replaced by steel in the late 1800s as those times changed. A little bit more about the city of Joliet, it's a very diverse city as far as uh, the demographic breakdown. Census data reflects population to be about 47.5% white non-Hispanic, 16.4% black non-Hispanic, and about 31.6% Hispanic. So that's just a little bit about the city of Joliet. So now I'll talk a bit about the wonderful school district that I'm privileged to serve, and that is the Joliet Public Schools District Number 86. We are the third largest elementary district in the state of Illinois, currently serving about 9,500 pre-kindergarten through eighth grade students. The district has 15 elementary schools, four junior high schools, one early childhood or pre-kindergarten center, and one alternative school. Um, the district is home to a large Hispanic student population that represents close to 67% of our total enrollment. And there are currently 19 languages represented within the district, with Spanish and French being the top two. Um, last year, we were at 14 languages, and this year, we're at 19. So as you can see from that, we're a very diverse district. Uh, so thank you for a great background to learn a little bit more about Joliet generally and the school district in particular. Shifting to the, the finance side of things a little bit, can you just tell us a, a bit about your current financial position, about the, the financial lay of the land at School District 86? Sure. So the financial position of Joliet 86, we are in a very healthy financial position right now, and we maintain very healthy fund balances. Um, we are largely funded by the state of Illinois, with our greatest source of revenue being evidence-based funding, or EBF for short in the school finance world. For those unaware of exactly what evidence-based funding is in a nutshell, it's the single largest state funding category for pre-K through 12 public education in the state and represents $350 million of the Illinois State Board of Education budget. So for Joliet 86, that source of revenue makes up about 60 to 65 percent of our total annual revenue each year. Um, so to go back to my previous mention of that EBF, the funding formula prior to 2017 was a comparatively less equitable funding formula that resulted in districts like 86 being more heavily impacted by proration during lean budgetary times. So for example, when the general state aid budget was being prorated, for every $1 that the district was entitled to, uh, the district would receive 89 cents. 
of that dollar in some of those more heavily prorated years. And what that resulted in over the course of five years was revenue equal to about $29 million that the district did not receive. So thankfully, that funding formula was changed again in 2017. And my district, along with many others in the state, are now much more equitably funded. So, Tamara, you'd mentioned a, a moment ago the transformation that Joliet is in the midst of right now, going from a you know, essentially a, a steel town to now a logistics and distribution and transportation hub, as well as having some interesting uh, you know, tourism and other economic development kinds of amenities. It seems like an exciting time. I can imagine that creates a variety of challenges and opportunities for you at the school district. So, honestly, interestingly enough, the transformation has been interesting in Joliet in that it has not been as particularly impactful as one might assume. So I'll explain that a little bit. So the boundaries of Joliet 86 are within what we call Old Joliet. Um, so if you're familiar with Joliet at all, for those familiar with Joliet, it kind of sprawls to the West quite a bit now. But that Old Joliet section is what Joliet 86 serves. So really the older portion of the city before that suburban sprawl started moving things further to the West. What that means for us is that a lot of that development, investment, et cetera, which is all happening to the West of us, does not directly impact us, but it impacts the other school districts that serve Joliet. So for instance, the Joliet Township High School District, which serves our students when they move on uh, from eighth grade into their high school years, that district is more heavily funded by property taxes, has different property wealth. Even though both districts are located within Joliet proper, we have an entirely different property tax base. So that really is an example of how you can have two school districts within the same city or town that are funded entirely differently and reap various benefits entirely differently. Because the high school district, they are benefiting directly from a lot of that investment that's happening on the other side of town where we unfortunately are not because that's not within our tax base. We have Harris Casino or the, the Caesars Entertainment Group that's been located in the, uh, within our boundaries since that casino was built. But that's, that's pretty much it. There is an Amazon hub that is within our, our boundaries, but a lot of the other boundaries or a lot of the other investment is outside of our tax base. I mean, we have in our notes here that Joliet's one of the one of the fastest one of the faster growing populations in the Midwest. But I mean, just because of how how the school districts are structured and how the public how the public finance is structured, that plays out really differently between two side by side districts. It really does. I always have this conversation with people, our administrative offices for Joliet 86 and then for Joliet Township High School District. We're about five, 10 minutes away from each other. But myself and that school business official, the way that we budget, the way that we look at our finances, it's totally different because that district is more reliant on property taxes. So they are looking at, at things on that side of the revenue versus me when I'm, I'm more heavily state funded. Um, so it, it ends up being, from my perspective, especially now that things have been relatively stable with the state budget, it makes for a more stable budgeting process for me, more reliable budgeting process than uh, relying on property taxes, so to speak. 
I wonder if you could if you could talk about that in a, just a little bit more detail because I know that's something that's especially interesting to our listeners. So you thinking about the contrasting strategies that you have to employ when you are more property tax driven rather than more state aid driven. One of them you mentioned a second ago, which is just the, the predictability. It's one thing to have you know to get your get your valuation from the county assessor and property taxes are sort of driven off of that, as opposed to having to deal with the uncertainty of when is the state going to pass a budget? Is the state going to pass a budget? Uh, so that, that certainty element seems really important. Are there other twists and turns that are unique to being more state funded than more local funded that you have to address just sort of in your, in your day-to-day planning management administration of the school's finances? So uh, with us being more heavily state funded, we're always having to keep an eye on the pulse of the state, the budget, where things stand. Fortunately, things have been financially healthy for the state over the last several years. Prior to, say, 2017, I'll use 2017 as an example, prior to that, that budget planning process, a lot of us school business officials were pretty much estimating how much money are we going to get or how much money are we not going to get from the state because that proration was in place and especially affecting and impacting districts that are more heavily state funded. I do write a a tax levy as well. So I'm levying for for property taxes as well. With that being less of a revenue source for me, it's not as, I don't want to say it's not as important because all sources of revenue are important, but my main focus is always keeping an eye on the pulse of that state budget and not necessarily being focused on what is the consumer price index for the current year, which that's what our our tax levies are based on. So for a district that is more heavily reliant on property taxes, they've seen an influx and an increase in their property tax revenues over the last couple of years because CPI has been as high as it is. Uh, Most districts fall under property tax caps. So the property, it's PTEL, Property Tax Extension Limitation Law. So most districts in the state of Illinois fall under that. Uh, So with CPI being, say, 7%, then your tax levy is maxed at 5%. Most districts are going to go ahead and maximize that levy to get those dollars. And that's how they increase their revenue, being more heavily reliant on property taxes. So on the flip side, for a district that's more uh, heavily reliant on state funding, we don't have much of an opportunity to increase that revenue as much because it's a smaller portion of our revenue. We've been talking about the kind of the equalization aid side of the formula. Are there any other uh, categorical or other state appropriations that that you all are able to access that maybe a a more property tax-driven district does not? Not necessarily. Those uh, mandated categoricals are for transportation aid, for instance. That has been historically prorated and it still continues continues to be prorated at about 80% of what it should be. That is um, obviously not as impactful as the larger evidence-based funding for us, but it is definitely impactful. Um, Other sources of mandated categoricals related to special education funding, those tend to be closer to fully funded, if not fully funded. 
Um, and again, all districts would have access to those dollars. There are some federal funding areas that some districts may not be um, eligible to receive, but that's it. That's federal funding and not necessarily state mandated categoricals. I want to move to a different part of the, the balance sheet for a minute here, because you all just passed a large uh, bond referendum with, with a really impressive 70% of the vote. So can you tell us a little bit about the referendum, why you decided to, to put it out to the voters and, and why, why, it was so, why you think it was so well received? Sure, sure. So what's happening here as far as our bonds and debt, we have an older referendum bond issue that is retiring. And so we had two options as we were looking at how things are, are working out with this debt retiring in consultation with our financial advisors. Our two options were go ahead and let that debt retire and let that money go back to the taxpayers, that portion of the debt service property tax bill, or look at issuing another referendum, issuing some more bonds, and in doing so, keeping the tax rate, the debt service tax rate, either level or a little bit lower than what it was with that referendum bond issue that's happened 20 years ago, this retiring. So in conversation with our board, superintendent, administration, and our financial advisors, we decided to go forward and move forward with that referendum prospect. Honestly, I believe the reason why it was so successful is because people saw that it was not going to increase their tax rate at all. And all of our projections, even as recently as this month, we had another review of where things are because in this current environment, interest rates have been going up, et cetera. So we had our financial advisor look at things again, and we're still in a position where when those bonds are sold in December of this year, we'll sell a portion. And then in January of 2024, we'll sell another portion and then we'll be done. $99.5 million total. We're still in a position where the debt service portion of our property tax levy is going to be less than what it is right now, because we'll be going from paying, say, $11 million per year towards debt service to paying $9 million per year towards debt service. So it's going to make that payment go down a little bit for our taxpayers. So just being able to have a conversation with the community and say, we can get $99.5 million worth of bond proceeds to help us replace a couple of our junior highs that are, are aging. It's going to help to not only preserve your property values, but perhaps increase your property values. And it's not going to cost you anything else. Us being able to have that conversation with the community is what I believe made the referendum so, success, so successful. There were other referendums uh, that were on the ballot in April 2023, as ours was, and they were not nearly as successful. So that those dollars are really going to be helpful for us to be able to replace those two aging facilities and really give our junior high students a facility that's going to better meet their needs. Yeah, it sure seems like a an easy story to tell, right? For the same for the same taxes, you get uh, all these great new capital projects, and and you're paying. As taxpayers, you're paying a sort of lower rate overall than what you were paying before. What do you think accounts for uh, the, you know the difference in those rates? Clearly, the the bond market is 
is looking at you a little bit differently than it did when those original bonds were sold. Uh, so what, what do you think is the story behind uh, getting such, just such a, a better deal overall? Not fully knowing what interest rates looked like back 20 years ago, or even what refunding was done with those bonds uh, when they were initially issued, if there was, was some refunding that happened, I would just have to guess that it's all interest rates. And the, the repayment period that we're looking at on this bond issue will be a little bit longer than 20 years. That's coming into play as well. But what we really wanted to, to do when we were having the conversation with our taxpayers, what we really wanted to express to them was that, one, we, we want your support for this, obviously. And in order to get your support, here's a, a financing mechanism that we're going to use that will cost you less money in the end. We did, of course, there were some no votes. The no votes were people who were thinking, okay, no, I'll, I'll take that X amount of dollars back per month and I won't send that to the school district. Largely, the majority of our taxpayers see the value in that investment. And again, it's preserving their property value and perhaps even increasing it. And it, it's an investment in the community as a whole. Speaking of investment, uh, so I want to. I'm curious about the the big infusion of federal funds. How have you all managed that? Where you know what kind of what kind of places has that money gone? And to to a already ask you the follow up before you even answer the first one, uh, the um, ESSER funds those are winding down. So um, want to hear about just how how are you managing just the general wind down of of all this this federal cash that's been coming in. Of course, the dreaded Esser Cliff, as everyone talks about. We have certainly had those conversations and discussions here in Joliet 86. How have we used that money? So just to give you an idea of just how much money the district received, it's a little over $40 million in total, when going from, from start to, to finish with all of the various rounds of funding. Right now, we are spending down our ESSER three money. So that last bit of federal funding, we're working on spending that down. One of the major things that the district was able to do as a result of receiving those funds was to update and upgrade some of our HVAC systems. We have 21 buildings, 21 schools total. Six of those buildings, we've been able to update and upgrade those HVAC systems. So how does that apply to the, those federal dollars? Those improvements improve the indoor air quality and circulation at those sites. And that was one of the requirements of the grant. Our buildings, a lot of them are older. We have three buildings that are over 100 years old. The average age of our buildings is 68 years. So again, that just getting that money has helped us to really update some of those systems and improve things for the indoor air quality for our students. We were also able to purchase um, HEPA filters, the, the portable HEPA filters, those are in place in every classroom space and in every office space throughout the district. So that was another improvement to indoor air quality that we made with those grant funds. As far as personnel, we've been able to add some one-on-one -on -one paraprofessional or teacher aid positions to assist with learning loss that resulted uh, due to the pandemic. Other investments with those federal dollars include some software programs that are specifically geared towards student growth and academic achievement. And we've also invested in various professional services programs to do the same. So partnering with various professional services to providers to assist our students with more one-on-one -on -one aid, one-on-one -on -one focus. 
As far as the Esser Cliff, as I mentioned, we've definitely been having those conversations. We're currently planning to incorporate the positions, the personnel positions that I mentioned, and those programs into our local budget after this fiscal year as that pandemic relief funding sunsets. Everything will be evaluated as far as efficacy to determine if continuing is needed. If the programs and the personnel have been effective, then we'll go ahead and work those into the local budget. And if there's no evidence that they were effective, well, then we'll just go ahead and let those go away and then look for other interventions or things that may be needed to help us get our students exactly where they need to be academically. That's really interesting. So it it sounds like you really did treat a lot of that federal money as investments, right? It wasn't necessarily support or just keeping the lights on. So clearly there was some of that, but unlike what we've heard from our friends, say in, in, cities and counties and, and other units of local government where it really was just about continuing to provide services. It really does sound like you all took it as an opportunity to uh, in, make some investments that'll pay some longer term dividends. Yes, absolutely. And we're very fortunate to have been able to do that, especially with the the facilities improvements that we were able to get completed with that funding. Obviously, we want the best indoor air quality possible for everyone outside of this funding, then we would have had to potentially look at a bond issue to cover uh, as much ground as we were able to cover. And these projects were on our facilities plan. uh, So it wasn't like we just said, oh, let's replace and upgrade the HVAC system at X building. These were things that were already on our facilities plan. And so then when we saw the guidelines of the grants and we realized we could use that funding was a no brainer. So Tamara, it's been great today to hear about all of the interesting leadership challenges that you face in Joliet, trying to anticipate what the state's going to do, trying to engage with the community around its needs and how the financial system that you have can meet or cannot meet those needs. You're certainly recognized as a leader in this world of school finance. What advice do you have for other aspiring leaders in the school finance space who would like to make the kind of difference that you've been able to make in your career? Absolutely love this question. Um, I'm an advocate for being involved and for leading change. Um, It it took me a while to get to that point and being comfortable with that, but honestly, I'm an advocate for that for everyone. My advice to anyone who wants to engage more and make an impact, it's going to sound really simple, but it's to just get started. It sounds simple, but that really is key. One way to get started is by engaging with people through various professional development associations, and by building your professional networks and your personal networks as well. There's a lot that can be learned from people who do what you do and from people who are operating in those roles that you operate in. Additionally, reaching out to legislators when possible is key as well, though I know that can be intimidating for many people. But I think it's important for everyone to remember that our legislators are elected to serve. Um, They're in those roles to listen to the voices of the constituents that they serve and hopefully to take those things to heart, some of the things to heart that they're hearing. If contacting legislators directly is too intimidating, 
Another way that someone can get involved in the legislative process is through filing witness slips through the ILGA.gov website. I've personally done that myself a time or two. It has been very effective with some bills as they're going through the process. So in a nutshell, for those that aren't uh, aware of what that process is, as bills are moving through the legislative process, constituents, you have an opportunity to file a witness slip either for or against the legislation. And it's a way to get your voice heard. We know that our legislators have good intentions, but sometimes they may not be aware of all of the consequences of passing certain legislations, or they've only heard one side of things. And so they're passionately pressing this legislation forward, but they haven't heard the other side of it. And so filing a witness slip is a way to get your point of view out there to them. It only takes a few minutes out of your day, can be done online. You don't have to show up anywhere if you don't want to. And there is the opportunity to go and um, you can testify if, if you'd like during a legislative session. Again, it's a way to engage in a legislative process that can be very impactful, but probably less intimidating. Um, and again, I've witnessed that process being very effective with several bills. So I encourage anyone who wants to dip their toe into impacting change, try that. Well, thank you so much to Tamara Mitchell, Assistant Superintendent for Business and Financial Services at the Juliet, Illinois School District. We really appreciate you giving us some time today on the Public Money Pod. Thank you, Justin and Liz. It has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Tamara Mitchell. She brought up um, uh, the fiscal cliff, the Esser fiscal cliff, to to be precise. And so I wanted to make this week's ripped from the headlines a little bit more about that and what's going on nationally. I pulled a story from MSN.com that talks about the the Esser fiscal cliff. And Esser, for anyone who um, is wondering what I'm talking about, it stands for the Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief, ESS. ER. That's federal funding that has been allocated in a few rounds a couple times in 2020, and then again in the American Rescue Plan Act in 2021. Those three allocations totaled about $190 billion for public schools and to be used over the next several years, much like you know a lot of the other recovery-type funding that states and local governments received directly. So this story is called Esser Money for Schools is Running Out, Creating a Fiscal Cliff, and it's by Matt Barnum. Again, this is on MSN.com. So the story talks about how the imminent end of billions of dollars in federal COVID relief money has a lot of people kind of looking ahead and trying to figure out how much of that they will be able to sustain and what what they're going to have to cut. Um, It's predicted or it's expected that school budgets will be shaped both by districts' own financial decisions and those made by state politicians. Um, What's not clear yet is how steep this fiscal cliff is going to be, although it's expected that that high-poverty schools will face a larger fiscal cliff. And that's largely because lower poverty schools, wealthier districts, have other access to funds. We talked about that with Tamara. Schools have received an average of um, about 4000 per student from these ESSER funds. But when you look at it, that's not spread evenly. The story says that nationally, districts in the more affluent areas received just over 1000 per student, with some even getting less. High poverty districts, on the other hand, got over 6000 per student. So not only are we talking about districts that, as, as we talked about with Tamara, have, have less wiggle room in terms of what their, what their spending per student is on a blanket basis, they got this great infusion from the federal government, but now they have so much more to to figure out in terms of 
what they're going to, you know, how they're going to manage without that afterwards. Um, the story goes into a little bit about how that was spent. Again, this is uh, very, our, our conversation with Tamara was very reflective of this. It says a good chunk of the funding was on things like uh, building upgrades, HVACs, um, some bonuses for staff, personal protective equipment. Um, some districts have used COVID money for ongoing operating costs, like paying teachers' salaries, maintaining buildings. As federal aid runs out, it's, the story says layoffs may follow. And the story also says there's a third, quote, mushier category, uh, supplementary expenses that schools have added to try to make up for learning loss or address other needs. Those might include expanded summer school programming, after school tutoring time, vendor contracts, or temporary new staff. Some schools have already begun cutting in those areas. Uh, the go story goes on to say that a, a good chunk of this, you know, like, how are you going to make this up or should you make it up? What can we continue paying for? That's going to have to come from states in addition to that, localities. That's the lay of the land. That's what's going on nationally. And again, really underscores the uh, in pretty much all the equity issues that we talked about earlier on. And then again with Tamara, you know, schools with less have bigger decisions to make. And that's kind of a constant, I think, when you're talking about cuts in education funding. But this ESSER programming really kind of highlighted what you can do with more money and, and the progress that you can make in, in educational outcomes. And now it's going away. And and I think one of our earlier guests on a, on a podcast said the worst thing you can do is is fund a new program and then take it take the money away. And and so this is really hard. I mean, we all everybody knew this was coming. Uh, you know, on the one hand, it was such a it was a great opportunity to try new things and and try to improve outcomes. But now comes the hard part. And I think the bottom line here, at least from what I'm getting from this story, is that it's going to be much harder for um, higher poverty districts than 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 other places in the U.S. It will be hard for everyone, probably, but th those areas are going to have the toughest decisions. Um, Justin, what's your what are your thoughts on on you know kind of the lay of the land here as this article paints it? Yeah, it's a really interesting piece and one of the few I think that we've seen that's been focused explicitly on solely on on ESSER, which seems to have not gotten nearly as much attention as some of the other uh, Recovery Act dollars that were focused more on local governments in particular. You know, it reminds me of there, there's a classic article that we often read in state and local public finance. It's called The Seven Deadly Sins of <laughs> Public Finance and it was written by <laughs> written by someone named Liz Farmer, and, and many of us uh, teach it and, and go back to it often. And one of those seven deadly sins, of course, is to use one-time money for recurring expenses. And I, you know, what was interesting about COVID generally, but this ESSER money in particular, and this, this piece does a nice job of laying it out, I think, is there was a sense among a lot of school officials that this one would be different, that a lot of those dollars that came into school districts would either become a recurring funding source from the federal government, or at least there would be, it wouldn't be a one-time infusion. Like it would take years to recover from COVID and they could count on a series of sort of supplemental appropriations and, and, and these dollars would taper off over time rather than being a cliff the way that they've turned out to be. But as it turned out, the federal government's treatment of this has been much more like every other kind of big one-time infusion of dollars that state and local governments have seen. And so now they're having to contend with all of the issues that you just described. What has been fascinating to watch and what will be really interesting to watch over the next several years is that there were several districts that did treat them, that they, they did not commit that deadly sin. They treated them as, in fact, investments. You just gave a couple examples. So Tamara talked, Tamara Mitchell talked about what Juliet had done in that space. Really interesting to, to figure out, you know, which districts approached it that way and why. Some of that might be professionalism of the of the finance team. Some of it might be the, the politics surrounding it. And some of it really, again, seemed to be a sense 
among a lot of the political leadership that there would be more federal money forthcoming at some date certain, uh, which has has not yet. So a classic illustration of a classic problem in state and local public finance with a very modern and intense twist called COVID. But as it turns out, these rules, these hard and fast rules of public finance seem to apply even in the most extreme circumstances. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money. Hey, Public Money Pod listeners, the UChicago Harris School of Public Policy is excited to announce that applications are now open for the upcoming ESG and Impact Investing Credential Program. I'll be instructing this course alongside John Oxtemy, Senior VP and Director of ESG Investing at Aerial Investments. We'd love to have you join us on campus on October 29th and 30th for two days of in-person lectures, case studies, networking sessions, and guest speakers. We'll cover key topics such as the policy and regulatory landscape for ESG, impact investing and measurement, financing sustainability, public market strategies and shareholder activism, private market strategies, and public-private partnerships for ESG. This course is a great way for investors or philanthropists to learn how to evaluate and manage impact investment opportunities using various frameworks, techniques, and toolkits. For enterprise leaders to gain strategies and methodologies to improve ESG performance, for public policy and regulation makers to develop more effective policies and to promote the healthy development of their industry, for a consultant or risk management professional who wants to acquire frameworks and analytical tools to better serve clients' development goals, and anyone else working in the ESG space. Discover the UChicago Harris difference when you apply today. Explore the program at har.rs slash Harris ESG. That's har.rs slash Harris ESG. Hope to see you there.